Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible clinical psychologist, Catherine E. Aponte. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to the show. Hello, Zach. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Today, we are going to be talking about creating a marriage of equals. And for those that don't know, Catherine Aponte is a clinical psychologist who happens to be married to another clinical psychologist. <laughs> and after training at Duke University and Spalding University, where both her master's theses were on gender and marriage, she has worked with couples for more than 30 years in Louisville, Kentucky, and taught marital therapy courses as an associate adjunct professor. Throughout her career, she has been devoted to helping couples create and maintain a committed and equitable marriage. She has her own blog called A Millennial Marriage and also contributes to Psychology Today and The Good Men Project. In 2019, Catherine published her book, A Marriage of Equals, How to Achieve Balance in a Committed Relationship, which was included in BookBub's 10 Books That Could Actually Improve Your Life. How are you today, Catherine? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for that really nice introduction, Zach. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on to the show. And you have been working with couples for a long time now, quite a few decades. And perhaps you've heard the saying that couples therapy is the best entertainment in town. And I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about some of the joys and challenges you've encountered over the years. Oh, yes, absolutely. I've been retired now for just a few years, and it's mm -hmm. given me time to reflect on those, both those joys and the challenges of working with couples for 30 years, of which time I really highly valued that work. And I highly valued what I learned from these people and that they entrusted their virtually their lives to me. I think the biggest challenge that I found was seeing folks who were demoralized, angry, hurt, and uh, blaming each other for the unhappiness in their marriage. My latest post on the Psychology Today blog was called When Love Dies, and it was about uh, a research project that looked at uh, the process by which couples went through that they ended up really falling out of love with each other. And it's very interesting because one of the first things that you know about that whole process is people do not come into therapy until they are really demoralized. Mm -hmm. And it starts out differently. It starts out with one or two of the couples relatively early in the marriage being disappointed in some way with their partner. And what's significant about this early period, it's usually it may be one person and sometimes it's it may be the wife, but not always. They don't reach out to anybody. And part of that problem is because there's a kind of a stigma, almost an unwritten rule 
that in our society, I think, that you don't talk about your personal relationship with your husband or your wife or partner outside the relationship. And as a matter of fact, I was just reading one of the Dear Abbey letters recently about a husband being very angry at a wife because she talked to other people about what was going on in their relationship. And very often in this period, wives will change themselves like being a better wife or being better this or a better listener or trying to engage the husband. And that doesn't work. And they become move a little bit more from being just disappointed to being disaffected. So the affection starts to be undermined. And at this point, sort of this middle phase, they might try to get the other person to change, you know, still working on the relationship and still maybe reaching out to some other friends or family, but not thinking about reaching out professionally to anybody. And when their efforts at change don't work and they try to change the partner, it doesn't work, that disappointment and becomes convinced disaffection and that settles in and they become angry and disengaged at this point. And I think once that happens, then sometimes people will seek professional help. And then when they come in like that, that's what I was describing early on. They're demoralized, they're hurt, they're angry, and they're just blaming each other. So I think that's the greatest challenge for a therapist is people coming in too late and being just demoralized and blaming. Mm. I think the joy is being able to intervene in that process and being able to help. And my particular approach has been to help them become more self-reflective and getting out of that blaming. Not self-reflective in this is my fault, but self-reflective in what is going on with me? What are my expectations? What are the things that I'm bringing into the relationship that are old things for me, you know, historically grounded injuries, for example, that I'm bringing into the relationship? And then be accountable for those personal issues. I get people, try to get people to look a lot of historical influences on how they think about relationships, you know, because those early relationships in our lives are important. I try to get them then to look at a different uh, perspective on the relationship, how it can work differently than what they have had, and how to work more collaboratively with each other. And I really try to offer a whole new way of looking at interacting with each other around negotiating collaboratively to establish a better working relationship. And I spent a lot of time talking about what that collaboratively negotiating really means. Mm. Again, just to recap a bit, the difficulty when people finally come to a professional is that they're really quite demoralized and we have to work through that and honor that, but at the same time move beyond that. And then I have to give them a new way of thinking about things, a new way of thinking about their relationship, about their marriage. Yeah, that's a really interesting process you just described of going from being disappointed to disaffected to disengaged. Yes. And it is true that a lot of people experience conflict over many months, sometimes many years before they finally get help from a professional. And by then, so much has deteriorated. And let's talk more about how you mentioned kind of the way out, kind of the way of short-circuiting this process from disappointment to disaffection to disengagement involves analyzing our own patterns and conditioning, which to me is really important because it's so easy in relationships to think that your partner is the sole source of all the problems in your relationship. 
And doing that internal work can be really challenging. So how do we become more aware, cognizant of how we ourselves are contributing to the conflict that is occurring in the relationship? Yes, that is a a basis of oftentimes where I have to start working with couples is with the idea of their conflict and the nature of those conflicts. And as you have I think are aware that I differentiate in the book between a conflict and a disagreement. Couples have disagreements about all kinds of things. We're different people and we have differences and we can negotiate those differences. And we're talking to each other. And when we're through negotiating, we're happy with each other and we're talking to each other. And when we're in conflict, that's not the case. And usually you can tell when a conflict is going to occur if you monitor what you're feeling, what your emotions are. There are three kind of fundamental emotions that tell me somebody is reacting personally, probably from some historical perspective, to something the spouse is doing. And those emotions are anger, hurt, and fear. And with the exception of hurt, that's really the fight and flight dimension of things, anger and uh, fear. But the hurt is a very interesting feeling. Uh, This wonderful psychiatrist talked about fear hurt as a kind of a catch-all emotion that tells us almost nothing, but it's really used a lot. So you have to pay attention to when you're feeling hurt. And then we use all kinds of different synonyms or euphemisms for anger, particularly I'm miffed, I'm upset, I'm irritated, I'm annoyed. When you start feeling uh, something like that, Whatever the issue is, you cannot negotiate that because now you're reacting to something that is going on that is more personal to you. Let me give you an example. Suppose you have a working couple and somebody, either one, it doesn't really matter, has uh, was responsible for bringing something home for dinner. And they walked in the door and didn't have it, had not done the task. And the, uh, let's say the wife, for example, then gets angry. She's tired. She's worked all day. What's going to happen to dinner? And she says, you know, not a nice voice. I don't understand. You you don't still do your fair share. And he is not going to cop to that. You know, for his perspective, we look at his perspective, he was tired too, and he simply forgot. And one of the interesting things about conflict is when you're angry or irritated, annoyed or miffed or hurt, what you end up doing is characterizing what the other person's actions or behavior. From my perspective as a psychologist, what that guy did was just not do what he said he was going to do. That's a description of what he did. Not doing his fair share is what she is experiencing of him. So that notion of fair share, or let's take an example of a wife, the couple is sitting together and She's talking to the husband about how she's had a tough day and he does not respond. And she says, I can't believe you're ignoring me. Well, ignoring there is a characterization of what he did. It's not a description. The description is he did not pay attention to her in the way that she wanted him to. Those two issues may be legitimate complaints around which some discussion occurs, but the fellow or the wife, whatever, whoever, whomever it is, is not going to cop to that characterization because he doesn't feel he ignored her. He did not pay attention to her. 
Well, his intention certainly was not to ignore her, nor did he. That's her characterization of it. And what's going to happen is when you characterize your partner's behavior like this, which, by the way, we do all the time, they are not going to cop to that. And what that does is increases the likelihood that they will respond personally to that situation and come at, for example, the first situation with the person who didn't bring the dinner home. Oh, you're nagging me. Nagging again is a characterization of her complaining to him that he did not do what he said he was going to do. Now you have a conflict. There is no discussion about what you're going to have for dinner. There is no discussion in the other case about who is talking to whom and what way they want to be talked to. It's now about who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Is it the slacker in the first case or is it the nagger? And there is no discussion. There is no negotiation at all. There is no negotiation now because it's not about the event. It's about the quality of your relationship. And the only out for this is to stop it and self-reflect in terms of what's going on with me. For example, I can talk a little bit more about this as we go along. You have to begin to ask yourself, what is it like feeling ignored? Why is feeling ignored important to me? So you have to do a self-reflective process. And in the book, I do this. I have a chapter called Taking Your Own Personal Inventory. And that's in another way that we commonly talk about that is I'm taking things personally. In both of those instances, the first person started taking things personally. Then the second person also does his or her part in taking it personally. And neither one is going to step back and reflect. You're going to go at each other. And very often with couples, if you don't stop and self-reflect, the conflict will end. You know, somebody will walk away or they'll get tired of it or they'll shut down or whatever, but nothing gets resolved. There's no self-understanding and there's no resolution of whatever the issue that elicited the reactions is about. So this whole disagreements can be negotiated, discussed, negotiated. Conflict is different, qualitatively different. The only way it can be resolved is through self-reflection and a particular kind of self-reflection called taking your own personal inventory. Mm. So I really love so many of the lessons that you just offered. And I just want to summarize it real quick. But I mean, please do (laughs) what I'm hearing is and this is something I loved reading about in your work is you kind of define disagreements as when couples talk to each other, which is normal. And in conflict, they talk at each other. Because as you mentioned, those three fundamental emotions of anger, hurt, and fear, suddenly you're not fully able to listen and receive when your stress response system is activated. And a huge thing that happens is what you call people start to characterize the other person rather than describe them so that something happens and then they see it indicative of who who they are as a person rather than like, environmental causes or like this thing just happened to happen at this period in time in our relationship. And so we want to stop and self-reflect and take our own personal inventory. And let's go like to that example that you offered. And this happens, of course, all the time in relationships where one partner says they're going to do something and then they don't do it. And we have some level of justification for being annoyed or frustrated or even angry 
they didn't stick to their word for whatever reason. And do you say the solution is to pause and self-reflect and take our personal inventory? So what does that look like? Well, hold on, just I want to back up a minute. You said somebody, your spouse doesn't do something we want them to do. We're kind of justified. Justified in what? We're kind of justified in asking a question about why did that occur? Why did that happen? So you're going to engage with your partner in identifying if there is a problem and what the problem is. But I take a very unusual stance here, Zach, and that is I don't justify anger, fear, or hurt. I think that only serves to reinforce that experience of things and it'll stop you. The moment that you start to feel that irritation, annoyance, you as a spouse need to be very cautious. And if you focus on the other person's behavior, let's follow this through just for a minute. If you're angry, then you're going to look for some reason to justify why you're angry. And if you find that, guess what you're going to do then? You're going to behave badly. You are not going to behave well. And then when you misbehave, then in fact, your partner is going to go through the same thing, annoyed, angry, irritated, and feel justified. So I just wanted to clarify, I take a very strong stance on position, and it's not always well received by people, not even my own fellow colleagues. I'm going to sort of go off of just a tangent for two minutes. (laughs) In our society, we have so overvalued feelings and emotions as if they are facts about the world. Now, our feelings and emotions are very important because they give us clues as to how we're understanding the world. But we have to look at how we're understanding the world through our own history, not assume that when I'm angry, that that's prima facie evidence that you've done something wrong. So just to elaborate on that, and it's very hard for people to accept that because psychologists and lay people like just so are so in love with emotions and feelings as if they are evidence about other people and about the world in general, and they're not. Mm. They're clues as to what I'm experiencing. Okay, so taking an inventory. One of the first things that you have to do is you have to be willing to accept the thesis, you know, the idea that if I'm upset or irritated or angry, it's a good idea to kind of look at what's going on. And to take a step back and say, now, what did happen? In what way am I characterizing? Or you can either say, in what way am I characterizing? Or in what way did I behave? And do I really want to behave that way towards my spouse? Do I want to really yell or call, come back and call him or her names? You know, that's another way to stop the process. The other process is to ask yourself, what about feeling ignored? What does that make me feel like? And I go through this and give some techniques both in the book about how to do this more in depth. But I can step back and I say, now, what happens when I'm ignored? Why is it that I'm being ignored? What does that mean about me? Well, maybe it means I'm not important enough to that person. Well, if I'm not important enough, what does that mean? Well, maybe I'm not a good wife. Well, or good husband. Well, if if I'm not a good wife or good husband, what does that mean about me? Well, Maybe I'm not good enough at large. So you can begin a process in psychology. This tool is technique is called a downward arrow, and it's described in the book. And it takes you down through that process of trying to 
when you're feeling ignored or in what way you're characterizing that or somebody's not paying attention to you or somebody is not doing their fair share, what is that? What is your personal take on this? And you need to look inside to find that, not at your spouse. And this is a a very awkward thing to begin with. But once you start doing it and once you get a little adept at it, you can recognize this right away and step back from a conflict. And guess what? You can learn an awful lot about yourself and learn what your vulnerabilities are, what your insecurities are. And most of those insecurities, by the way, are laid down very early on. And we can reflect on that and make that distinction between, yes, I did feel that way as a youngster, but you know, I am important now. And the fact that my husband did not listen to me the way I wanted to him may be an issue between us, particularly if he does it regularly, but it does not reflect on my value and my importance. And it takes some work to do that. And a lot of times uh, the work is well done with somebody else talking to somebody else, particularly a professional person. But one of the things I tried to do in the book was provide a guide that was usable and that people, a lay person could take and gain something from it. Yeah, I really resonate with all that you're saying. And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on how our emotions, we act as if our emotions are facts, but instead they are clues and often clues pointing to our own kind of emotional history and conditioning that's causing us to feel this way. And I want to combine this with some of the things that you just said, because I'm curious about what we can do when we notice our partner is coming from this place. Like, I know it's easy for like one partner to attack and then the other one to like attack back and get defensive. But often what happens a lot is like one partner is like, I can't believe you did this thing. Like, you're such a jerk. Like, why would you do this? And the other partner is like, I want to like respond in the best way possible. And I'm also kind of curious because you're a clinical psychologist, you're married to a clinical psychologist, and I'm almost (laughs) imagining like one of you getting angry and then the other one saying, you know what, anger, fear, and hurt only serve to reinforce that experience. And you need to take a personal inventory right now. Um, I'm sure sure that's not how it works. So in terms of, yeah, when we are, when we do notice our partner getting angry and they also might want to feel validated or empathized with in the situation, what's the best way to respond? Yeah. I'm going to just step aside before I fully answer the question for you. But that notion of validation, I get into so much controversy with my fellow psychologists on this notion of validating people's feelings. I am never saying that feelings are not real and that they're not important to pay attention to. You don't hear me saying that, I don't think, right? No. All I'm saying is they don't reflect reality. They are not indicators of the truth of the situation, but they reflect something very important about you. And so what people wanted to do, and it's so, you know, your feelings to validate feelings. The problem is, unless you sort out what those feelings are about, what are you validating? I am not going to validate my husband's anger at me for something that I did that he's characterizing. I am not going to validate his characterization of me. I certainly can honor, not validate, the fact that he is angry 
and the fact that this means something important to him. But I'm not going to validate his characterization of me. And if you don't separate out the characterization from the anger or hurt or fear, you're going to validate both. And that does not help. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So let me go back now. So if Joe's mad at me, we get mad at each other all the time. (laughs) And I know he's upset. I am not going to, I'm going to work hard not to react (laughs) to the characterization. And then I'm going to say something to the effect of, let's talk about this. Tell me now what it is that you're upset about. So I will try to get him to describe to me what I'm doing that is not working for him or is a problem for him. And then I will try to address that. Then he and I will both try to address that. And because we come from the same framework, that's easier for us to do because we both adopt this this self-reflective attitude. But if you're with a spouse who is not attuned to that, your job is to not deny the feelings, not deny anything, but don't. I wouldn't validate them, but I would say, tell me what's going on, what is not working for you. And see, the languages I, I would use, and I would teach people to use that kind of language, is neutral language. What isn't working for you is not the same thing as saying, what's making you angry? Because I don't want to validate that, right? So what's not working with you? And let's talk about that. And then you can say, you know, if we can agree on that, then the two of you can move to what about that makes you feel angry? And then that there is the opportunity there for some self-reflection to occur. So we want to ask sort of like really open ended neutral questions, kind of probing into the person's experience. Beautifully said. I like that very much. I'm going to write that down because... <laughs> <laughs> Open-ended questions, neutral. (laughs) Exactly. So that's wonderful. And I do want to get into your book now because, you know, we only have so much time. I feel like we could talk about so many things. But before we get into the book specifically, let's talk about self-help books in general. Because you also had a blog post on whether or not self-help books in relationships actually help. And you talked about how most self-help books are targeted to and also bought by women. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So I'm just curious, in your opinion, like how effective are self-help books? What are some things we want to look for in self-help books that actually help? And what do we want to kind of avoid? Okay, good question. I, I really like that you focused on this. This was not in the books. This is really in the Psychology Today post because I was asked by the American Psychological Association to review a book, a self-help book. So I was doing some research about self-help books. And what I did find out was exactly what you just described, that most self-help books about relationships are bought by women. And men will buy books that are discussed. They may discuss a similar topic, but it'll be under philosophy or psychology. It won't be under self-help. And most self-help books about relationships are targeted for women. And so when things are not going well in a relationship, they will tend to see in what way am I to blame or in what way do I need to do things differently? That's in that uh, in that when love dies approach as well, too. The first response is, what am I doing wrong and what do I need to do differently? It's very interesting because the publishers orient the titles of the books 
to that kind of self-blame. They'll lay out a problem and then say, what do you want to do? What, here's what you can do about it. And men don't read them. So, you know, I'm, unfortunately, I think men are not perhaps reading my book, which makes, <laughs> which I would prefer they do. <laughs> but in this book that I was reviewing, the book did not address, this is a current book. This I wrote this uh, review a year or so ago. So this is, and these were by two respected psychologists. And they didn't address gender issues at all in this day and age. And they made claims about if you change the way you approach your partner, it will make a difference in the relationship. So women who are reading this book, and they don't address gender issues here. So women are going to read this as, I have to make the changes to make the relationship work. And as we just talked about a little earlier, because you change in a relationship, it may change the dynamics, the negative dynamics that go on. For example, in a conflict, if I don't respond negatively to a personal reaction on my, on my husband's part, we will not get in a conflict because I'm not going to participate in it. But that doesn't mean the quality of the relationship or whatever the issue is will change. So the error that I think this people were making is that they assumed that if they were making a big argument that if one person changes, the other person will, the relationship will change. And I do not agree with that. So that's when I started looking up relationship books. And uh, I read a lot of interesting stuff, not only about self-help, but also some various ways of people who read self-help books and what they're looking for. And what I've come to the conclusion is about relationships, you have to be very careful about reading books that don't address gender issues, okay, or address them in the way appraising them, sort of, you know, John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus is the epitome of a gender issue, a characterization of relationships driven by gender. Those are not going to be helpful. Let me back up that. They are helpful when people are in great trouble. Any little thing is helpful to them, but it does not help them accomplish necessarily the kind of relationship that I think currently is going to survive and be long-lasting and bring pleasure and satisfaction to young couples. Things have just changed too much for them. And the other thing is, obviously, we're going to read self-help books and learn something about it that you wish to change in yourself. Kudos to you for that. Just don't think it goes beyond that necessarily. You know, that you may change but that doesn't mean your spouse is going to change. Throughout my career as a psychologist working with couples, I would often have a husband or a wife come in and the partner would not come in. Now, I can use the same principles of understanding conflict, understanding negotiations, taking personal inventories, and I can make a huge difference in that person's life. And that will change whatever the nature of the dynamic is, but that will not necessarily help them create a kind of relationship they want unless their partner is engaged with them. So I warn people very early on, I said, I can help you and I'm happy to do that. I presume it'll make your life better. And it does, but it doesn't necessarily change the relationship. Oftentimes, when that happens and somebody works with me and they take a different view and things and take a different view on their marriages, 
they step away from characterizing and starting conflicts themselves. Then they have to make a choice. What is their marriage relationship about? What are they in it for? Are they in it because it's a long-standing relationship, because they admire each other, because they have children together, because it's financially secure? Those are choices individuals make about staying in a relationship or not. Those are not my choices. I never make choices like that. The only time I would ever say to somebody, you need to get away is if there's abuse going on of some sort. But I help people understand themselves and change the possibly back out of negative dynamics in the relationship so then they can make the kind of choices they want. One of those choices is sometimes to invite the partner to participate in the counseling session. And that has happened too. And so I think I would never tell anybody not to read self-help books. I caution people to be cautious about it Mm. and also cautious about who is writing them. John Gray, for example, if I can remember correctly, did not get a degree from a well-respected university or school. My recollection is from what I've read about him relatively recently is he was raised in a religious family. So he, in my view, he doesn't have the credentials to, in fact, write the things that he writes about. But I think you have to be careful about the credentials of people. You have to be careful about what they're promising you. But if you read anything you read that you can gain something about yourself that is helpful to you, great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, self-help books can be extraordinarily helpful for a lot of people. They gain insight into their lives. And what I'm hearing from you is we do have to sort of address and progress from gender issues and break out of historical patriarchal ideals that you can still find in books even published today. And there are some books that like don't address gender at all which keeps things relatively stagnant and simple. But there are others like Women Are From Mars that sort of do reinforce gender norms and roles and attribute like conflict in relationship to the fact that like men are kind of this way and women are kind of this way. But I always look at that and I'm like, you know, you look at same sex couples and guess what? They have the exact same issues that heterosexual couples do. Because it's not necessarily about the gender in any way, but there's always somebody who is more outgoing or wants to communicate more or this, you know, you always have one person who's like more some way than the other person. And it's about overcoming conflicts. Yeah, those are the differences that you have to negotiate. Each of us always brings ourselves into a relationship, brings our whole history with us. Mm. And that to establish a satisfying, vibrant sustainable relationship, you have to know about that. And it's just some of the things I was thinking about I was, as I was preparing for this is I focus on, you know, equal marriage is valuing each other as individuals before we value each other as a husband, also wife, or as a man or as a woman. I'm an individual person. You need to address me as an individual, not as a category of people. We are not categories of people. And to talk about men are from Mars and women is to categorize people in a way that does not honor people. It doesn't value the individual. When you classify and interact with people based on categories, then what you bring are all the preconceived ideas about those categories. And you then lose sight of that person as an individual. And in my mind, you really undercut 
the opportunity to see each other as equals and individuals and valuing each other as individuals. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. I love it. What you just said, we want to value each other as individuals before you value the other as any sort of category. Exactly. And it's absolutely true. You know, when we do think about the categories or social constructs of gender, it can easily fall into stereotypes, into misconceptions and into projecting our own, you know, belief system onto our partner and not respecting their own beingness. So let's go into kind of the path forward for the modern couple and what it does truly mean to create a marriage of equals, because along with the progress that we've had in gender equality, we don't have like the clear gender roles that we used to have back in the day where people entered a marriage with certain expectations that they then met. Typically, the the man was the breadwinner and the, the woman was the stay at home caretaker. And now that's been thrown out the window and anybody can be the breadwinner. Anybody can be the stay at home person. And as a result, a lot of these roles are kind of negotiated. They have to be figured out. And sometimes there's conflict. Like maybe, you know, both people want to stay at home, (laughs) not go to work. Well, be careful now. It's not necessarily a conflict. It Mm -hmm. may be disagreements. And if you don't have assigned categories by which you develop these expectations, then in fact, what happens is you are free to really negotiate things. And you have to learn how to negotiate. Negotiation, as I think about it, collaborative negotiation, to be collaborative and negotiation, you have to differentiate this from the notion of negotiation in businesses. Another way, and it's very popular nowadays because of the political climate, to talk about transactional relationships. Business relationships are transactional relationships. And those kinds of relationships are based on self-interest. That is, I give in order to get. I don't give because I care about you and I want to support you. And together, we're going to build a life that supports each other as individuals. And we're going to build a better life than if we had done this alone. So we have to learn how to negotiate, how to recognize what it is that's important to us in a particular situation. And oftentimes, this fits in part of a a whole plan of life we have about ourselves. What are the things that are important to us? What are the wants that I have and the desires that I have? And how do I express those to my spouse? And not justify them, but explain why they're important. And then each of us can do that around a given issue, like, for example, childcare or tasks or careers or any of the myriad things that come up in a relationship. And then in my book, I, I have a graphic that shows we put those things that we want on a virtual table, on a virtual kitchen table. So X and Y is out there on the table and it's not in us, you know, those, those wishes and wants and whatever that difference is about them is on the table. It isn't a difference between us. It's a difference between the things that are important to us and we can negotiate those. And the goal is of that negotiation is to have something come out that honors everybody, honors what we both want. I want to read a little something that was written that I think is just beautifully said. 
Imagine a family with a free evening and a strong shared wish to spend it together in some form of entertainment. They begin with a number of different proposals, explaining to one another their effort, their preferences, not justifying, explaining the strength of the preference, how important it is to them. Each family member learns something new about the various options. Usually we don't think about that. But when my husband expresses something that he wants, I learn and why it's important to him, I learn something new about that because it's not my preference. And we learn how he views that. So I learned something about him and I learned something about what he wants. And neither of us wants to do anything that the other regards as too unattractive. And so we end up with a plan that reflects both our wishes, or if you're talking about a family, the collective wishes, the wishes that are achieved by negotiation. And by the way, this is hard work. This is not easy. But why should it be easy? It should not be easy. It's how we spend our lives. So it's hard work, but what a wonderful experience to learn how to do this with each other and to share our lives together around the things that are important to other. And I will tell you another thing, too, that I think is if you have this kind of approach, then as your life changes and you grow over the years and the things that you want change, that can be accommodated via this negotiation process because you're not fit into any rigid definition of who you should be and what you should be. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I do really love the emphasis on having the negotiation be a collaboration on helping you both achieve your wishes, achieve your dreams, achieve your goals, both individually and as a relationship. And I am kind of curious about how we do make that negotiation more collaborative because we all I feel like have this temptation that if we are giving something, we want something in return. Well, if I'm going to do this for you, I want you to do this for me. And something that you actually caution against in your book is obsessing over a fair division of labor. Right. And that creating a marriage of equals is not about dividing things up 50-50. So what does it really mean to have equality in a relationship? Okay, a couple of things. One is I'm going to go back to, I think what you said, you said it beautifully, is we have this temptation and actually we've been taught in our society that it's legitimate to put yourself first. Self-interest is always at the basis of our motivation. That historically comes from Darwin, of course, you know, the selfish gene. That actually is one interpretation of evolutionary theory that, uh, in fact, much more recently in the past 20, 30 years has been much more emphasis on we are cooperative people. We are not just all competitive and transactional. But it's also true that whole notion of selfishness and self-interest is the better way of saying selfishness, right, is we're self-interested and everybody buys that. As a matter of fact, that's one of the major mantras of our society, and particularly if you don't mind my saying going this way, our capitalist society, you can take this out of the (laughs) the podcast if you wish. (laughs) No, I I wholeheartedly believe you that, you know, we are taught that we're number, number one. That's why we conceive of relationships as transactional. And again, just a little political kind of thing. I don't, I'm not going either way, but 
one of the interesting things that's been useful to me in terms of the ideas that I try to get across is Trump's notion, you know, Trump is an transactional person, and he's really made it very clear what a transaction is, that it really is based on self-interest. So this whole notion of if I do something and we have to share tasks 50-50 feeds into that model. And we have to get away from a transactional model in terms of allocating or choosing how to manage our lives, the mundane things, part of our life, you know, the, the household tasks and the child rearing tasks. <laughs> it has to be about caring about each other. It, it cannot be about self-interest alone. I, and I certainly am not promoting that we uh, lay down and, and just let the other person have what they want. That's not what negotiation is. Negotiation is what I just described. You're able to identify what is important to you and why it's important to you. And that has equal weight on this virtual table as any other person's contribution. I did write a post that talked about this 50-50 stuff. There's this really interesting fellow by the name of Matthew Frey, who writes for The Good Men Project, which is a very nice blog. I wrote a post called Husbands, How to Avoid Being Divorced by Your Wife, because his wife left him because he left dishes in the sink. It's a beautiful, wonderful argument about what it means to divide it up by gender roles, because that's what he did. He was the clueless husband. The other kind of thing that's happening is lots of people do contracts now, right, about dividing up the, and making sure that it's uh, fair. And of course, part of the problem with fairness is that almost forces you into this measuring it and uh, keeping track of it. And that's very problematic. Even John Gottman, who's a well-known psychologist, talks about reciprocity, which is where this stuff all comes from is not a good model because it just builds resentment because you've got to keep track. You know, I'm going to keep track of how much I'm doing. And it will always feel to me like I'm doing more. There is no objective way to evaluate the effort that I put into what I do. I can observe what Joe does, but I don't observe his effort. When I do such task, I do the task, but I also know the work that I put in to do it. And you can't measure that. So What I tried to do in this little post was talk about some ways, some tips about divvying up things like chores and childcare, and I'll mention just a couple of them. First of all, you have to get rid of the standards, whether they're his standards or her standards. There's no standard definition of how to do household. What is a clean bathtub? So the thing to do is you make a list of all the chores and then jointly together develop some standards about how should it be done and who can do that. How will we work that out as to who does what, when? Maybe you do sometimes some things one, sometimes some things another time. Or maybe one person feels like they're better at it. Sometimes you do things that are, in fact, consistent with gender norms. Like this one wife said, she will always be criticized if she doesn't write the thank you notes for a gift. Right. And so you just do that kind of thing because it turns out not to be that important. But if your overall scheme, is to not be driven by 50-50, to not be driven by gender, then you're flexible to change as your life changes. You have to develop joint standards about how you want things done and who chooses or who is the best team or how to assign them. And then, of course, a phrase notion, the clueless husband. The clueless husband, you know, as he says, (laughs) it's no real big surprise that we eat dinner every night at six o'clock and have for years. 
it's not a surprise that that dinner has to be fixed. So I, I think there are guides for how to allocate chores. And one of the things you can do is look about shared care and shared parenting, because there are some, lots of people are working out very different ways of doing this. Uh, is such that it's based on a negotiation process and not some kind of assigned process by gender, and that it doesn't devolve into some kind of transaction that undermines that what we're really about is caring about each other and for each other. I love a lot of that. And you mentioned that a belief in reciprocity builds resentment. Mm-hmm. And I really resonate with that because I do feel like it's easy in partnership as you're like fixing the car or, or painting a wall or something. You're like, gosh, I do so much and my partner doesn't do anything. And there is that building of resentment. Right. So I'm kind of curious really quickly, what do you think we should believe in? Because what I'm hearing is care and I hear giving. And if we're not believing in reciprocity, what's the attitude kind of intention we're bringing to the things that we do in relationship? Joe and I have been thinking about this a lot. Like we've been married a very long time. We value each other in our own rights. I value him in addition to being my husband, right? Joe is a, he is a wonderful person. I mean, I get irritated, I get annoyed, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't always agree with him, et cetera. But he is a fine person and our world is a better place because he's in it and I'm a better person because I'm married to him. And he feels exactly that way towards me. And that's what I think love is about and that's what I think a relationship is about. And you work the rest of that out, you know, through this whole negotiation, through this whole sharing, through this whole bringing children into the world, if that's what you wish to do. And you help each other build your careers or the contributions that you make in life. You support each other in that because we're better people together than we would be apart. And we really do believe that. And I think it's really objectively true that Joe and I are better people have made better contributions because we have been married to each other. That's really beautiful. And I'm just so tempted to just use the word miracles. Like I feel when I hear you talk about like valuing your partner, like and who they are, respecting them as an individual. I just keep thinking like seeing your partner as this like beautiful, amazing, incredible miracle before you. Perhaps what you're trying to get at is another way to think about this is a transcendental experience. It transcends the concrete, the ordinary. And I would I would subscribe to that. The wish to have and to work towards a relationship that has some transcendental mm. quality. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Dr. Aponte, for coming onto the show, sharing us your wealth of wisdom and experience. And I do have to finish by asking a question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I think when you begin, you begin by falling in love. And there's all the romance and the chemistry and the sexual aspects of it. And you want that to stay throughout your married life, but it becomes more than that. And it becomes an affirmation. And I think, I guess that's what I would end with is it is an affirmation of each other that love really across the whole lifespan is. 
And it can include many of those other wonderful things that being married is about that we start out with and we look forward to in, in the very beginning of our relationship. I love that. Just the word affirmation and how it is affirmation. Uh, affirmating? Affirming, yes, that's the word. <laughs> and you wish to affirm your spouse. You enjoy being affirmed, but there is a great pleasure in affirming your spouse. And I think that's love as well. Hmm. Such a beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much, Dr. Aponte, for coming on to the show. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? I have a book page, which is called www.marriageofequals. And they can also go on Psychology Today and put under my, my name under, there'll be a, a heading for blogging. And they can just put my name under that and they can reach me that way. And then you mentioned an older blog that I had, which was a marriage of equals. I think those are the best ways to uh, look at my work. And then, of course, also the book, which is available at indie bookstores and it's available in both editions, in the Kindle edition or the e-edition and the uh, softback edition from Amazon or indie books. Uh, It's called, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Marriage of Equals. Absolutely. I, and I highly encourage all of our listeners do check out A Marriage of Equals. It's a wonderful read that will help you create equality in your relationship that both affirms who you are as a person, because that is truly what love is all about. <laughs> Thank you, Zach, so much. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Catherine. Thank you, Zach. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.